The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Mark chapter 15 is where we begin our study of God's Word this morning. We're in the final part of a four-part series called The Final Act, Scenes from Mark's Gospel. And so we begin by looking at uh, that, that which led up to the crucifixion. And this week we look at the crucifixion, the cross a little bit, and then the resurrection after that. It's a message I have entitled, The End and the Beginning. The End and the Beginning. Kind of a reversal of what you would expect, but we're going to see the end, the cross, really was the beginning, which became the resurrection. So that's where we're headed this morning as we look at God's Word. Mark chapter 15, verse 15. As we look at this, we read just that one verse, and then we'll talk about some more together. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we look at the word now, we thank you for our time of worship. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus who lives, who gives us hope. And now would you teach us in the name of Christ, amen. Newspaper headlines. I, I love to read newspapers. I read newspaper every day or a couple of them every day if I can. And uh, there's a place in Washington, D.C. maybe you've been to called the Museum. The Museum. It's a great museum in D.C. about the news. So I, I keep up with headlines. Here are some headlines that uh, I've picked out. Uh, they crack me up sometimes. One-armed man applauds the kindness of strangers. I wonder what editor did that. You can picture that. I'm a one-eye guy, the one-armed guy trying to applaud uh, kindness. And so here's another one. Mississippi's literacy program shows improvement. Who's from Mississippi out there? That is not how you spell Mississippi. Their literacy program has gone down the tube. Look at that right there. Uh, here's another headline. Uh, plane forced to land at airports. That's a great headline right there, isn't it? As opposed to, I don't know what that could be. And uh, then here's another headline. Marijuana issue sent to a joint committee. I bet everybody, everybody volunteered to be on that committee, right? I mean, uh, where would he go? So the day after Christ was crucified, if there was a Jerusalem Post that put out headlines, how would they read? The day after Christ was crucified, what would it read like? Maybe it was something like this, Temple Cleanser Crucified. By the way, somebody came up to me after said, how did you get a copy of the Jerusalem Post from when Christ was over? I made these up, okay? I made them up. Got a good secretary. Temple cleanser crucified. No final miracle for the miracle worker. If this is the day after crucifixion, this is what you're reading. And then you read one that may say, King of the Jews killed by the Romans. It was a day of hopeless despair. It was a day of hopeless despair. I mean, it, it was really the end for the disciples and everyone else. It was a time of hopeless despair. Christ's followers saw all hope extinguished. The light of the world was now snuffed out. In most ways, it was a typical Friday. It seemed to be a typical Friday. I mean, on this particular day, uh, children cried and people died. On this day, I'm sure mothers uh, uh, wrestled with their kids, politicians wrestled with problems, and businessmen wrestled with the bottom line. On this particular Friday, it was a Friday that was typical in many ways. Babies were born, fields were formed, shepherds watched sheep, and tired men found time to sleep. But actually, my friends, it was the most atypical day, not only in Israel's history, but in the world's history. Because for six hours, one Friday, God's son hung from a cross. It was atypical. We have God hanging on a cross. In fact, the heavens are mourning so much that we see in the scriptures that in its despair, the heavens turn black. What we see is that uh, the creator is dying in the hands of his creation. Spit and blood are caked to his cheeks. His lips are cracked and swollen. Thorns ripped through his scalp. 
his legs knot with cramps, his lungs scream with pain, yet death, which would be a welcome release, is not ready to play its final tune. It's six hours one Friday when God's son hung from a cross. Far worse than the breaking of the body was the breaking of his heart. You see, his own countrymen had turned away from him. One of his own disciples had betrayed him with a kiss. Another had denied him when he heard the rooster crow. His own followers ran for cover. His own father must leave him alone to bear the sins of the world. And so much more punishing than the physical uh, excruciating pain, excruciating pain he went through what was the breaking of his heart from those that turned against him. Six hours one Friday, God's son hung from a cross. The disciples sought a time of hopeless despair. In Mark chapter 15, 15, look in your Bibles, look at your apps, Mark 15, 15, it's very clear the whole thing started with something called scourging. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas. You see, it was a Passover custom to release one of the prisoners. And so there was a choice between two prisoners, Jesus or an insurrectionist named Barabbas. And the crowd began to holler towards Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. So Barabbas was released. Jesus was the one to be crucified. So when Barabbas is released, the next thing we hear is the crack of the Roman nine tails, the the crack of this whip lacerating the back of our Savior. And so the whole process began with something called scourging. It was something to prepare a criminal for death. You wish that death would come, but scourging brought you to the brink of death. In fact, it was legal under the Romans to scourge someone 39 times because 40 lashes meant death. The Roman cat of nine tails would have nine braided pieces of leather. On the end of that leather would either be little scraps of glass, metal, or rock. And so they were meant to lacerate the body. You would have one uh, guard from either side who would lacerate from one side, one from the other with the whip going back and forth. The prisoners' bodies would be taunt over a stump, over a log, over a pole of some kind so that each blow would deliver exactly what it was meant to do. That's what a Roman scourging was. Christ our Savior was being scourged. He was being prepared for crucifixion. Scourging would hasten death to the cross once a person went to the cross. Following the scourging, what we see was mockery. If you look at Mark chapter 15, it says in verse 17, they dressed him in purple. Purple, the color of royalty, the color of certain universities with good football teams and stuff. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And so he's being mocked. He says, here's the purple robe of royalty. Here is the crown I'm going to give you, but it's a crown filled with thorns. And it goes on and it says, not only that, but look at verse 18. They begin to mock him. They're crying out, hail, king of the Jews. This one is a king. And it says they put a reed in his hand. The reed would be a mock scepter. And it says when they did this, they would kneel before him and bow before him. And they just mocked Christ over and over and over. Six hours, one Friday, God's son was hanging from the cross. My friends, when I read these first two things, the scourging and the mockery, actually what comes to my mind, I want to scream out myself and say, do something, Jesus. Just do something. I mean, you who had the power to speak and the universe was created, you who kind of sprinkled the stars in the heavens and could cup his hands according to Isaiah 40 and hold the oceans in them, you could do something. You call upon angels, you call upon the Father. You had the power to, to shut the mouths of lions when Daniel was cast in a den. You have taken your hands and put them in the eyes of a blind man and brought sight. You who've resurrected Jairus' daughter and Lazarus, you can do anything. Call upon the Father, call upon the angels, but don't take this. Don't take it. But Christ was on a mission. He was on a death mission. It was a mission for you and a mission for me. And so Christ didn't do those things. 
See, when I think of what our Savior has gone through in my own mind, when I think of this, I want to say, show him. Just show him. Call down thunder from heaven, fire from heaven. Do something. If you're not going to kill him, not going to incinerate him in the spot, you could send him a plague. You remember the plagues back when Moses was on the planet and he went to Pharaoh? I mean, you could send him a plague of boils or hemorrhoids, something like that, that you did back then. But not Jesus. In fact, Isaiah 53, commenting on this, said he was like a sheep led to slaughter. He was like a sheep. He stood silently before his accusers. And so what we find is our Savior being mocked, being beaten, being bruised, being scourged on our behalf without doing all that he could have done. Next, it's followed by crucifixion. If you look at verse 20, it says, after they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, they put his garments on him, and they led him away to be crucified. They led Christ to Golgotha, the hill where crucifixions took place outside of Jerusalem. The place where not only Christ, but others were crucified. Crucifixion was not an uncommon way for death to take place. In fact, when Spartacus, the Roman soldier, died, over 10,000 of his men would be crucified. Crucifixion was a brutal death, as you know. Cicero writes that Romans didn't allow one another to be crucified after time. On rare occasion, a woman would be crucified. Crucifixion was such a brutal death that when a woman was crucified, she'd be crucified facing the cross, not facing the crowd. When a notorious criminal was crucified, sometimes they would dig a deeper hole to put the vertical beam a little deeper so that you would be eye level and so people could walk by and they could mock and they could sneer and they could say words to looking, looking at them eyeball to eyeball. Crucifixion, a brutal death, a painful death a death that Christ endured for you, a death that Christ endured for me. What's happening here? Why is this taking place? Well, the scriptures comment on everything that, we, that, that takes place in the life of Christ, and here's a comment on why Christ was hanging from the cross that day. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so the one who was no sin became sin, so that, that's a purpose clause, in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So the sin bearer bears our sin is what takes place. It's reminiscent of what the nation of Israel experienced every year on Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom Day Kippur Atonement, the Day of Atonement. When two goats would be taken up by the high priest and one goat, the high priest would place his hand on both goats, a symbolic transference of the sin of the nation to those animals. And at that point in time, one animal would be sent into the wilderness and everyone would holler, run goat, run, take away our sins. The other goat would be killed, his blood would be caught, and that blood would be sprinkled on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and it's symbolically saying the Father looking down to his people sees the blood covering them, and that's what happens to those of us that know Christ. Why did he do this? to be the sin bearer. Why? So that we might become his righteousness. At the moment of salvation, not only are our sins forgiven, but righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us. It covers us. And that's how we live out the Christian life, by his grace, by his mercy, through his righteousness. And so we do it not on our own power, but through the power of the one who has made us righteous, who has made us perfect, who's put us in right standing, righteousness, right standing before him. So we look at the cross, my friends. Our Savior's on that cross for you and for you and for you and for you and for me. That's why he was there. 
Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from yesteryear, the 1800s in London, said, stand at the foot of the cross, count the purple drops by which you've been cleansed, see the thorn crown, mark a scourged shoulder still gushing with the crimson streaks, and if you don't lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you've never seen it. You worship the Savior who gave his life on your behalf. Max Licato puts it this way, run your thumb over the tip of the spear, balance a spike in the palm of your hand. Read the wooden sign written in your own language. And as you do, touch the velvet dirt moist with the blood of God. Blood he bled for you, spear he took for you, nails he felled for you, the sign he left for you, he did all of this for you. Here's what I'd like you to do this Easter. Our Savior did this for you, my friend. Our Savior's on that cross for you. So here's what I'd like for you to do. Those last few phrases, he bled for you, the blood he bled for you, I want you to read that with me out loud, but instead of saying you, I want you to substitute your name there. So I'm going to read it, and you're going to read it out loud with me, but you put your name there. Let's do it together. The blood he bled for Gary, the spear he took for Gary, the nails he felt for Gary, the sign he left for Gary. He did all of this for Gary. That's what Christ has done for you, my friends. When you look at that cross, you see a Savior who is offering his life on your behalf. The last song that we sang, or the second to last song, had to do that that, that, that his death on the cross is a victory for us because we deserve to be there. And so we have scourging, we have mockery, we have crucifixion, then finally death itself comes, sweet death. Because for one who's been through all this, death is desirable. Death is something that's been elusive and something that's desired, and so Christ, our Savior, died. The scriptures tell us that his mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, and John was there, and that, that two guys named Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took him from that cross. And we moved from death to burial, and we know that Christ didn't even have his own tomb, that instead of his own tomb, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And so Christ himself is buried there. For the disciples, my friends, this was a day of hopelessness. It was a day of hopeless despair. Imagine you've been following Christ for three years. You're thinking he's going to usher in the kingdom, and then all of a sudden, he's dead in a tomb. It's over. Everything you've been living for for three years is done. It's finished. Kaput. No more. It was a day of darkness. It was a day of hopelessness. Let me stop right there for a second. Some of you may be in hopelessness right now. Or maybe it's not hopeless, maybe it's just discouragement, despair, disappointment. Life has not turned out the way you thought it should or thought it would. Maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's that job that was supposed to be so good, but it's not. The Savior looks down from the cross and he says, I want to give you hope. I want to give you hope for now and I want to give you eternal hope as well. Hopeless despair. I don't know if that's you, but the reality of it is, we can have hope in Christ. Recently, somebody told me, I asked me a question, what do you know about Woody Allen? Actually, I don't know much. I've seen a few of his movies along the way, and they're quite frankly mostly depressing. And so I read a book about Woody Allen. And uh, Woody Allen's life, quite frankly, is depressing. Uh, when, when you read about, here are a couple of statements made by Woody Allen. It's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Here's another statement by Woody Allen. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. Woody Allen, by his own admission, is scared to death of death. Scared to death. He says, I, I'm an insomniac because I'm afraid I'll die during the night. I, I'm reading what he's written. He says, I am a restless soul. 
He said, I make movies because I don't want to be focused on what happens at the end. In my mind, there is no God, there's no purpose, there's no life after life, and consequently, no need to be in this life. I can't really come up with a good reason to choose life over death, so I just keep making movies. Hopeless despair. Hopelessness. A skeptic, an atheist actually, with no hope. My friends, apart from Christ, life is hopeless. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. On this day, the disciples are hopeless. They're filled with despair because Christ is gone. But my friends, that's Friday and Sunday was coming. That was Friday, but Sunday's coming. It was Friday and Christ was dead, but Sunday was coming when he would soon be alive and what was hopeless despair turns into hopeful expectation. You see, the end took place, but the beginning happened on, on, on that Sunday when Christ came alive from that tomb. In fact, it's quite interesting. That the craziest announcement in the entire world is found in Mark chapter 16. I mean, you think about it. We, we've got ladies who are making their way to the tomb of Christ. By the way, here's an interesting thing. Three times in 12 verses it mentions, if you look at 1547, 16.1, 16.9, it mentions Mary Magdalene, mentions ladies. There are those that say the gospels are just a made-up story that Christ didn't really rise from the dead, that his disciples wrote this later. And so it's really the disciples kind of defend their own faith. But here's the reality. In that day and age, ladies, this, this may actually insult you, but that day and age, a woman's testimony was not admissible in a Roman court. You as a woman could not testify in a Roman court. So if you were a disciple making up a story and say, hey, I want you to know this is a true story, the last thing you would do would use three encounters with women as the first encounters with the risen Savior to prove your point because it would be inadmissible in that day and age. Tim Keller writes in his book, The King's Cross, one of the evidences for the resurrection is the fact that women were the first there and was reported by men in the Gospels. And so what we find is what was hopeless despair becomes hopeful expectation because of this announcement. Here's the announcement. Entering the tomb, verse 5, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a robe. You see, when they were winding their way to the tomb, the greatest concern they had was about this rock. Who's going to move the stone? In fact, it's mentioned in all four Gospels. Look at verse 3. Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And when they got there, the stone had been rolled away. And by the way, the word stone, there are three Greek words that could be used for stone. One would be like a pebble. The next would be like a, a small st stone that we could pick up. The next is a boulder. And that's the word that's used here. And look at what he says. Don't be amazed. For you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. He's risen. He's not here. That, my friends, is the craziest announcement in the entire world. In fact, it was so crazy. Look at the response of, them, of those that were there, 16-8. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The guys just said, the angel said, don't be afraid. How many times have you said, whenever an angel tells you not to be afraid, you need to be scared? And that's what happened here. That's the wildest announcement in the world. When it was announced that the dead man was alive, all of a sudden they're filled with trembling and astonishment and fear gripping them. It's amazing. That's their response. You know, I've heard some crazy announcements in my day and age. There's one that uh, I ran across a couple of years ago, happened on an American Airlines flight out of DFW that was headed to Los Angeles. Plane took off, and you know how the captain comes on after you reach a cruising altitude, so this is what happened on that plane. After it reached the comfortable cruising altitude, the captain made an announcement on the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Welcome to flight number 293, nonstop from DFW to Los Angeles. 
The weather ahead is good, and therefore we should have a smooth and uneventful flight. Now sit back and relax. And the next thing they heard was over the microphone, oh no, the captain's screaming. How would you respond to that announcement? So he came back on a couple of moments later. And when he came back on, this is what he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so sorry if I scared you earlier. I bet he did. But while I was talking, the flight attendant brought me a cup of coffee and spilled the hot coffee in my lap. You should see the front of my pants right now. A passenger back in coach stood up and shouted, that's nothing, you should see the back of my pants right now. Um, you know, that's a crazy announcement. But let me tell you something crazier. A dead savior is now alive. And the result is these women were trembling and astonished and afraid. And they hightailed for the disciples. And they tell them what happened. And then the final announcement that's given to them, or before that it says, uh, Lakato says, how conditions have changed since Friday. The crucifixion was marked by sudden darkness, silent angels and mocking soldiers. At the empty tomb, the soldiers are silent. Angel speaks, light erupts like Vesuvius. The one who is dead is said to be alive, and the soldiers who are alive look as if they're dead. The women can tell something is up. What they don't know, it's not something, it's someone who's up. Amen? He's alive. He's alive. That's why we're here today. The first century Christians did not worship because they found an empty tomb. They worshiped because they saw a living Savior. And that's why we're here today as well. C.S. Lewis said, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then nothing in life really matters. But if Christ rose from the dead, nothing else in life really matters. The resurrection of Christ, the cornerstone, the hinge of Christianity. The final instruction given to them is go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. You can't keep this to yourself. You have to tell others. You go and tell the world what Christ has done. Go and tell them what you've seen, what you've experienced, and what you've heard. And it's the last command given to them. It's found in each of the Gospels in a different way. Matthew says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I've got a bunch of grandkids playing t-ball right now. And one sets in College Station, the other's in Houston, so we can't make those games. So oftentimes our family, our, our kids, our in-laws, well, our brother, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, they'll make videos sent to us. And, and so I can't say which one, but one of them is so excited. First game, uh, they get to the plate, hit the ball, and uh, I can hear the coach saying, go to first base, go to first base, run to first base, run to first base, as that grand daughter. I've only got one of those. Grand, I shouldn't say that. As she stands at home plate waiting to go and all of a sudden, man, she takes off. Well, that night we get a phone call, Papado, Papado, you're not going to believe what happened. What happened, sweetie? I made it to first base. I made it to first base. I made it to first base. After standing at home plate for five minutes, she made it to first base. <laughs> she was so excited. She's so cute, too. I got to tell you, she had catcher's outfit on. She had shin guard. She had chest protector. She had face mask. And she had a bow coming out the back. <laughs> that little girl was so excited, she couldn't wait to tell us what happened. When a dead man becomes alive, it gives to you eternal hope and eternal life. We should want to go tell everybody. We can't keep, cannot keep that to ourselves. 
And so the last point, Terry, if you'll pop up the, or Jim, pop up the last point for me. What the empty tomb does, the empty tomb is filled with hope. It's filled with hope. So I would give you three applications from this. Application number one. If you're here Easter 2017, if you're not sure Christ is your Savior, if you experience forgiveness for your sins from him, I can't think of a greater way to experience Easter for you and your family and with you, your family with you, than for you to personally right now trust Christ. What would keep you from doing that? A Savior who bled on that cross for you. You read those words. That was for you. And I trust, not that you know about Christ, but you'll trust Christ. Never forget the first time I went rappelling. We're at Young Life Camp. It was um, uh, Buena Vista, Colorado Frontier. And so we get to the edge of this ledge, and uh, I'm geared up. I get hooked in, and I, I look up and think I'm absolutely crazy. I weigh 200 pounds, and I'm getting ready to go about 120 feet down the side, and I've got a kid that's going to do this getting paid 10 bucks an hour. <laughs> I'm thinking I must be an idiot. I, I, I probably So he looked at me and said, uh, Mr. DeSalvo, have you ever rappelled before? I said, no, but I've read about it. He said, that's not what I asked. Have you repelled before? I said, no, but I've watched everybody else go down there. That's not what I asked. Mr. DeSalvo, have you repelled before? One time, actually, on spring break, we brought rappelling gear with us on that trip with some friends, and we got iced in, so we rappelled down the balcony from the second floor inside the house. So the answer is no, I haven't. He said, Mr. DeSalvo, I'm asking, have you personally repelled before? And my answer is, I've read about it, studied it, but I've never done it. I made it down the bottom of the mountain, obviously, and here I am. So let me ask you this question. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior before? Not do you know about him. Not have you studied about him. Not have you seen others whose lives have been transformed. But as I look at you, have you personally trusted Christ as your Savior? Application number one. This morning can be a morning of eternal change. Application number two. Go and tell. How can we keep it to ourselves? Running to first base is a big deal. But knowing Christ and telling others about it is something to truly be excited about. And thirdly, we need to worship our risen Savior. Worship team, would you join me? Let's watch this last video together. Jim, if you go to that last video, it will be a conclusion of our message. If you were a king, would you allow yourself to be broken? If everything was yours just because you'd spoken, could you die and drink pain for all of your enemies? Are you willing to be slain for devilish tendencies? Could you crush your son's frame for those that profane your name? Could you become like nothing and forfeit all fame? Would you give up your joy and be stripped of your peace if I told you doing so would get prisoners released? The power of God could have extinguished the slain, but without his death on the cross, our sins would remain. Now that's a love that gives us new graces, new life, new freedom, new stars, new embraces. From the one who erases, replaces, and leaves no traces of who we were before he took our places. That's a love in which there is no rejection, no demand for perfection, no judge's objection, but affection, connection, a dead life resurrection. That's a love so deep, so long, so high, a love so steep, so strong, so wide, 
that there is no place in us, it cannot fill, no wound in us, it cannot seal, no pain in us, it cannot heal, he rose from darkness to glory, he rewrote our story, he is alive. He's alive and that's why we worship today, amen.